It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Monday. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. From our studios in San Diego, this is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, the venerable John Riley. We welcome you to our Monday bonus podcast. And John, we're going lots of different places in the next hour or so with our bonus coverage. We will start with baseball. We will go to the National Football League. We got NBA. We got hockey. We got tennis, we got golf, we got soccer. Do we have enough time if we're going to hit all these hot buttons? How you doing? I'm doing great. I think maybe we need a three- or a four-hour talk show to fit all this in. <laughs> Unbelievable number of topics on the table. We're going to get to them very quickly. John, just briefly, tell people on our live stream about how they can join us, how they can co-host with us, how they can interact with us on Fans Forum at the end of today's Monday Bonus Podcast. Yeah, so you can get involved in Fans Forum, you know, just like the old days when talking to Hacksaw on the phone on 690. So just... uh Type in your comment, your question for Hacksaw in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll get you involved in the Fans Forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. Got your seatbelt on? You're wearing a helmet? <laughs> I need to put one on, yeah. We got a lot to talk about. Let's start with your baseball team. Yeah, I mean, the Padres, you know, they finished that road trip 5-5. Five and five. We're still kind of in this limbo period, right, Hacksaw? Padres, here's the question, and, and the burning headline, because we are now a week out, from the baseball trading deadline, will the Padres be forced to become sellers or are they buyers? Do they still have a hope? Juan Soto, Blake Snell, two marquee names. What do you do with them? All that to be probably decided within this next week based on who they play. But here's John. Here's the question. I'm going to give you some statistics. I'm going to ask you what offends you the most, <laughs> not just the win and loss record of All the right. Padres. 220 batting average, runners in scoring position, second worst in baseball with a 253 million payroll. Or is it 0-9 in extra innings with all these big-time bats and the inability to score with guys at second base in the extra inning? Their record is 2-39 when they trail in the eighth inning of games. When they play substandard teams, 500 or less, they're 30 and 34 on the season. One run games with that big batting order. They're 6 and 14. And in games decided by either one or two runs, they are 17 and 30. How can you be 10 games behind? How can you be in seventh place in the wild card race with all these historical bats, with Joe Musgrove with a 2.00 ERA in his last 11 starts, with Blake Snell with a 0.58 ERA in his last 11 starts, and you still got you Darvish, and you got one of the lead closers in baseball and Josh Hader. How the hell can you be as bad as they are? Pirates, three-game series. Then they get first-place Texas. Then they got to go to Colorado, where historically they've struggled. Then they get the enemy, the Dodgers, for four. Then they got to go to Seattle, which is in the pennant race, and they got to go to Arizona, which has started to find itself again. 18 of the next 28 are on the road after having gone through a 10-game roadie just completed. So, John, what offends you about the team 
that right now is seventh, fighting for three positions in the wild card race. What blows your mind? I think it's the the batting average with runners in scoring position because that's the core problem. And you explained all the different symptoms that it's created. But when you have these kinds of players, they need to produce. They need to be, have productive hitting. And they've improved lately. But still, the track record for this season, they've dug such a big hole. And here we are a week away from the trade deadline, and you're still not sure what A.J. Preller is going to do. And Bob Melvin... Yesterday, Sunday, after the crummy performance in Detroit against a AAA pitching staff, Bob Melvin says, we need more fire. It is game 100 of the season, and he's still (laughs) lecturing his players about showing up, being on the edge, being aggressive, being ready to play. We need more fire. It's, It's just there's something so wrong from a chemistry standpoint. Dugout, leadership, into this clubhouse. Excuse me, it's driving me crazy. Yeah, it, it's it's bananas. And so, I mean, you know, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about who's the leader, who's the team captain, who's the vocal leader. And you go through that roster and, you know, it's Musgrove, but on offense, you're not sure who it is. You would hope that it's Manny, but to me, this... If there's a guy who's a leader and you're down in the seventh inning, they're the ones that are rallying the troops. But now when they're down in the seventh inning, they almost always lose. Yeah. You're watching us on live stream. You got a question or if you got a statement pertaining to Padre baseball, send it to us in chat right now. Let's go from that team to another team that's hanging on for dear life, but they're hanging on and they're winning. They're, um, yeah, it's incredible how well they're doing. And some of the, you know, the J.D. Martinez has been a heck of a pickup for this team, but they've got to get pitchers. I mean, what's the latest in the rumors? Well, the Dodgers are really struggling right now. Julio Urias has an ERA of 5.06, and he's had two different injuries this year, just not the same pitcher that he was. Clayton Kershaw threw a very aggressive bullpen session. He, of course, has been coming back uh, from uh, shoulder issues, had a cortisone injection, was scheduled to throw again on Sunday. They backed him off. They're going to give him more rest, so he's not ready. Tony Gonsolin, who was a star last year, is kind of denigrated into a scuffling four- and five-inning pitcher. Bobby Miller, who came blazing out of Oklahoma City when they needed him because of the injuries to Syndergaard and obviously what happened to Dustin May and the fact there was no Walker Bueller, he's 6-1, and one, but he's he's really scuffled. And I don't know what they're going to do with Ev Sheehan. I think they need to send him back to Oklahoma City. This is the kid, the first night he pitched, I think he threw five perfect innings in his first Dodgers start. And he said, wow. Yeah. His last 12 innings, 17 runs, 17 hits, 12 bases on balls, 29 base runners in 12 innings. He kind of looks like he's fatigued and he's overwhelmed. And it's obvious that the other three kids, Ryan Pepio, Mike Grove, Gavin Stone, not really ready to be in the major league rotation. So the burning question, do you trade one of these kid pitchers who's got great upside and, and promise to try to get a veteran arm that would stabilize your roster and help propel you to clinch the pennant. Dodgers are 57 and 41. They've won with all these pitching problems that I mentioned. They've won 10 of their last 13 because they go to the ballpark and they bring their bats. I mean, they're playing home run derby and everybody's hitting bombs. Freddie Freeman might be an MVP candidate that nobody's talking about. Mookie Betts is Mookie Betts. J.D. Martinez has got 24 bombs. He's not playing at Fenway Park. Right. He's playing at Dodger Stadium. So, But they're going to, I think they have to make a deal 
even though the rest of the division might not be equal to them right now, I think they have to go get a veteran arm, and they sure have a lot of policies. Now, we spent an inordinate amount of time on our podcast last week talking about Otani, and suddenly the conversation with the Dodgers might be shifting from Otani to frontline veteran middle-of-the-rotation pitcher because they got goods they could use as trade bait. You were in Dodger Blue. Tell me your thoughts. Yeah, they they got to do something. I mean, you know, granted, we're all, we all know that they're thinking about Otani next year as a free agent, but they've got they got an opportunity sitting them right in, their, in front of their face. You know, they're unexpectedly in first place. Why not go for it? So, you know, if they ask for, if they try to get Otani, they're going to have to give up, what, three, four, five of those kids for a two-month rental? That's a steep price to pay. So maybe they shift and, and look at some of those other guys that they can plug in. Unless the Dodgers ask the Angels, we're willing to give you a boatload of our young prospects. You need to give us 48 hours because we're not making the trade unless we get a contract extension agreement with Otani's agents. So I think that's the only way that deal gets done because I don't think they would trade all these young arms. And that would have to be a part and parcel of the angel transaction to rent him for two months. So we shall see. we got a week to go. Dodgers are in first place. Everybody else is chasing them. I don't know if the Dodgers are living on borrowed time, but... For them to be first with the mess they have in the rotation, the mess they had in the bullpen, amazing. Next team. Boy, is this a tough decision for them. It is. I mean, Artie Marino's in a tough spot. I mean, it seems like they're going to have to cut bait. What do the Halos do? Great question you've got there. They're 51-49, and trying to keep their hand in the wild card playoff race. Otani's got 36 home runs now. I mean, he's on a track to bust beyond what Aaron Judge did a year ago. He's he's lost a little bit off his fastball. I think there's some pitching fatigue that has set in. I've been told by people that worked up there that they're really emotionally torn as to what they should do. Yeah. Keep Otani and go the distance and see if they can make the playoffs or make a trade to add something to impress Otani or just give it up. Because there is no Mike Trout coming back for eight weeks. And now Anthony Rendon's going back on the injured list again with a severe bone bruise in his shin. And those things don't heal in 15 minutes. The Angels just, they're just a mess. They they got the superstar and they got all these other problems around that superstar. So I don't know what they do. If If I were king, I would have offered him five years, $250 million, maybe with some opt-outs just to lock him down and go forward. I don't know if the offer was made. I don't know if he refused to even evaluate the offer or was the offer rejected. If they get to the finish line and and they have to trade him, then you announce what you did. I offered. He rejected. I can't, on behalf of the Angel fans, let this kid walk without getting quality compensation. That's why we traded him. That, if I were king, if you were the chancellor, what would you do? Yeah. Well, well first of all, we all know that Scott Boris is going to take him no, to free agent. Boris. It's CAA. Oh, it's CAA. And okay. they're going to do what Boris does. <laughs> okay. They're going to take him to free agency. I think they they kind of dropped the hammer. That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think if if you were king and you want to offer that five year two fifty deal, that makes a lot of sense to do in the off season before we got started, or even in the first couple of months of twenty twenty three. We're now at a point where, Grant, I don't know what happens behind closed doors, but 
good chance that Otani is pretty much said, I'm going in the market and he's probably not coming back. So I think the Angels have to make a move to improve their franchise because they can't just wish and hope and pray that he's going to stick around. I mean, they got to get something in return. Okay. You're going to trade him. Yeah. yeah. Next press release would be, you should probably leave this podcast. That's what Angel fans <laughs> would be saying. Now I would go from there. Let's move on. A couple of other really interesting baseball storylines to talk about. Yeah, we're talking here about the uh, the Hall of or the, excuse me the the free agents that are out there. These targets, there's some pretty big names. August one, uh, everybody needs pitching, whether it's a short term rental or it's a rental of a guy the other team wants to deal because they're not going to be able to afford him, uh, or whether it's a rental to then sign the guy to extension. These are the hot names. This guy was Lucas Giolato was hot Toronto Blue Jay prospect, wound up going to the White Sox, has pitched well, bad franchise, bunch of nagging injuries. They're not going to be able to re-sign him because his dollar value is going to be significant, maybe 20 to 25 mil. He's available. We hear the Dodgers are interested. I don't understand what's going on at Wrigley Field. Marcus Stroman's had a huge bounce-back season, maybe quietly, might be a potential Cy Young Award guy. Why the Cubs don't want to offer to extend him Hard to believe unless they don't believe that this is Marcus Stroman you're going to get every year going forward. Uh, He's shown these flashes, but he's never shown the consistency of this year until this year. Cleveland historically has developed so many pitchers, John, and then they turn around and move them before they become free agents because their farm system just continues to develop them. Shane Bieber's currently on the injured list with a minor shoulder ailment. Guy's a warrior. Guys like all the other Cleveland pitchers who've been dealt away, he's going to bring them a volume of young players in return. Interesting guy is in St. Louis, Jack Flaherty. Cardinals are having just a miserable season. Jack Flaherty, once really promising prospect, has fought through some nagging injury issues. He spent the first third of this season on the AL. He's finally back. He's pitching well. they got so many young arms that they're probably going to wind up moving him might be a bit of a question mark there. Uh, journeyman, the old dog, Lance Lynn, uh, ex-Texas Ranger, ex-Cardinal, or is in now with the White Sox. He's given up 25 home runs. Throws the hell out of the ball, strikes a lot of guys out, doesn't keep the ball in the yard. That'd be at about a 15-minute rental. I don't, I don't think you'd pay a big price to get him, but he does give you innings. And then the, the mystery guy is Eduardo Rodriguez, former Red Sox lefty with Detroit, has had flashes in which he's pitched really well, Fenway Park and Comerica Park, but... There have been personality issues. He left the team with mental health issues. Now he's back in Detroit. He's probably going to be traded. So if I were king, I think I'd go after Giolito with the idea maybe I could sign him to an extension. My second choice on that list would probably be Bieber. If I could get Flaherty to come in and be my fourth or fifth guy at Dodger Stadium or even Angel Stadium, maybe I'd look in that direction. Any of those names kind of attract your attention? Yeah, there are interesting names on that list. I mean, Marcus Stroman, you're not sure what you're going to get because the previous years he was hit and miss. He's been great this year. And Lance Lynn, I think think you're right on target there. That guy is just going to – he just throws like high fastballs and (laughs) people are going to light him up. So, you know, every year we come down to this trade deadline and every year – Every contending team needs more pitching. And here are some great names that are on the board. This is always an exciting time. Uh, it makes the baseball trade deadline is so much different than the other sports. Yep. So I like this. Now, you know, if, if you're the Padres, you're not going for any of these guys. If you're the Dodgers, there's some pretty interesting names here. Uh, a lot of guys you could plug in and probably pay a lot less than you would have to uh, pay to get Otani. Okay, you did buckle your seat. 
Belt. Yes, I okay. did. Hold on to the table. All right. Okay, next name. Justin Verlander. Mets. Uh-huh. Carlos Carrasco. Mets. Landing spot? San Francisco. Yeah, I saw that rumor as well. $40 million, one year left on Verlander's contract. Old warrior. Now it would be it would mean the Mets are raising the, the surrender flag to the season and they're going to dispatch some people and then they'll dive back into free agency next year. But I don't know that the Dodgers could take nor would want to take on a $40 million deal for next year that Verlander would have in a suitcase when he arrives at LAX. But San Francisco's got... Got money. They got space because of all these one-year rentals, and they're just hanging in there. So keep an eye on that one. You like Verlander in San Francisco? It was interesting. I mean, your tier point, the Giants have a lot of resources, and they're unexpectedly competitive this year, too. So it makes sense for them to make a move for Verlander or one of these other pitchers. But, wow, that would be something if he came over. But how old is he? Uh, just this side of 40. Yeah. So, you know, that's a gamble, right? Because he's already had some injuries this year, I think. Okay. Other baseball story. What a novel weekend it was to watch. Yeah. So this is where we're going to talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame here. And some great guys got in, you know. Oh, the crime dog and the captain inducted in the Hall of Fame. Fred McGriff. What an unbelievable career. 489 career home runs. You know, Toronto. Cup of coffee, San Diego legendary career Atlanta. I had forgotten that he linked up with the Dodgers right at the end. What a tremendous gentleman. What a great, great player. And the captain, Scott Rowland. Holy cow, you talk about a grinder. I mean, this is a self-made guy. Star third baseman, Cardinals, Phillies, finished up with the Reds, leader. Very impressive person. And their speeches were just so cool at Cooperstown on Sunday afternoon. The crime dog, he never spoke. He was so refined and so introverted. He said more in a 15 to 20 minute speech than I heard from him in his multiple years with the Padres. I mean, he was just fascinating to talk about how what a struggle it was and the coaches that influenced him and how he went two for 27 his first year deep in the minor leagues in the Smoky Mountains and he became a Hall of Famer. And Roland, I mean, it's fascinating to talk about what Roland learned to make himself a good player. And it all kind of spun back to when he was a high school athlete struggling. And he was a, ba- he was a pretty good basketball player, but he, he couldn't keep up. And he had the conversation with his dad. And his dad says, what can't you do? He says, well, I can't jump and I can't shoot consistently. And I'm a step slow to the basket. And, well, what can you do? He said, well, I can defend. And I can bang, and I know how to post up and rebound and all that. He said, go do what you can do. End of the conversation. And he took that philosophy with him to baseball as he marched through the minor leagues, got to the major leagues. Nice. You talk about a grinder just every day. That's who he was. Not a personality. Didn't sell himself. He was probably as stoic and quiet as the crime dog was at home plate. Uh, And you, you could identify McGriff because there's the ball and it's going out. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter whose jersey he was wearing, it left the yard. You identified Roland because he was diving for ground balls. He was sliding into first base head first. He was stroking it. He was hitting home runs. Wound up with 318 home runs and a 281 career batting average. But to hear these guys tell the story of Cooperstown and it's so cool. Have you ever been to Cooperstown Hall of Fame? Yeah, we went uh, about 12 years ago. And what a neat little town that is. And, and the museum is just unbelievable. Yeah, when you walk through 
the Hall of Plaques. Mm-hmm. And I went there a couple of Octobers ago. And I'd been there prior when I used to work in upstate New York. I used to broadcast the Hall of Fame game when the major league teams would go in there and play on that Monday. Oh, wow. It was really cool. I walked in, and there's just total silence in the walkway with the Hall of Plaques. And there on the top row on the right, and the light is shining off it, is the gold plaque of Mr. Padre Tony Gwynn. Beautiful. So cool. So if you're a baseball fan, move that to the top of your bucket list. You need to go to Cooperstown and walk through the Hall of Fame because it's utterly spectacular, not just where the plaques are, but all the displays and all the historical stuff and the pictures and the movies. Really fun. Here's a keynote. I know it's summer vacation. You go there in the summer. There's a trillion people in Cooperstown. You go there in January when it is snowing and it is cold and there's nobody in the hall and you can walk in there and get lost for 11 hours during the winter. To me, that's the best time to go. But how about the crime dog? How about the captain? Yeah. Well, I mean, just quickly on, on Cooperstown, you're right. It's a museum and you can get lost there. But I had, you know, my wife and my two young kids with me and, you know, they didn't have as much patience. And, and uh, so I actually I sent them back to the hotel and I stayed for like an extra three hours. But these two guys, I mean, you know, we I question a lot of other people question whether Scott Rowland was legit. But you look at his numbers and, you know, he's he is legit. Um, but you got to love McGriff. I mean, when he was here in San Diego. Diego. He was just so productive. And he's one of those players that you could identify him instantly by his silhouette, you know, whether he's bat- at bat in the left-handers batter's box or just the way he played first base and the way he moved. Um, he was so instantly, you know, identifiable and had this grace and beauty about how he moved around. Well, that was a great era in Padre history. I, you know, that trade with Toronto, the, when they traded uh, Alomar, you kind of look in the rearview mirror. Maybe we gave up too much, but it was nice to have McGriff here for a few years. Yeah, we got him. Then the ownership said, cut payroll, trade him, which was too bad. Mm-hmm. Great for Atlanta, but what a just really, what a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I dealt with him. I liked him. Very quiet, very introspective. Whereas the other guy was just a grinder. You knew what he was all about. Okay, before we spin to the next topic on the table, which will be NFL storylines, John, uh, remind everybody about subscribing to our podcast, our Bonus Monday podcast, and then push somebody's button so they'll join us on Fans Forum. Okay, yeah, so you want to subscribe, you know, you can get Hacksaw's podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, we're on all those platforms, including on YouTube. Subscribe, you'll get all the updates, especially on YouTube as we drop those video clips throughout the week. So if you subscribe there, click on that bell, you'll get those updates. And yeah, Fans Forum is already loading up. We got Pedro, Angel, um, Art is in there. So, you know, if you got a question, a comment, you know, just type it in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll get you involved. And if you like sports, you need to check my website. That's the address right up the top, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. I write on it every day, the best 15 minutes in sports radio. If you liked Hacksaw's headlines, you'll like my website, One Man's Opinion column, my people's mini polls. So join us. Also, we like you. If you like it, thumbs up. If you like it, give us a five-star rating. 
We'd like to have your support, too, going forward. On we go. Let's talk NFL football. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how NFL football, we talk about it 12 months a year. (laughs) It's unlike any other sport, but, I mean, a lot going on with camps and some of these quarterbacks. Well, they're all in camp now. Uh, The the Charger players uh, check in the veterans tomorrow. First workouts on Wednesday. Number of camps have already opened. These are some of the storylines, and there's stories breaking almost hourly now uh, on a Monday afternoon. Jimmy Garoppolo passed his physical with the Raiders. He will be in camp on Wednesday. Foot fracture, multiple surgeries. I guess the burning question, how long does he hold up? John, despite the fact I think his career one-loss records 31-14, and 14, guy has a history of getting hurt. Garoppolo wearing the silver and black. New era aura starts. New York Jets, Aaron Rodgers, Alan Lazard, the wide receiver, he lured with him from Green Bay. Uh, they got their young running back, uh, Bryce Reese, back. They had four offensive tackles hurt. They're all back healthy now. Things are going to change with Aaron Rodgers at the throttle with the New York Jets. Brock Purdy, your San Francisco 49ers. We find out. Uh, I guess the burning question, they say he has recovered from the minor brace elbow surgery. We know what he did at the end of the season to save San Francisco's season. But physically, can he hold up throwing 50 passes a day in training camp? They're going to have to they're going to have to monitor that. Of course, they do have the first round pick that they overpaid for. Uh, you know, what is what is Trey Lance? Is he ready? Sam Darnold, the good insurance policy. So that's a one huge question mark about what's going on in, in San Francisco. Is is Brock Purdy ready to play? Carolina, here are the keys to the car. That's Bryce Young, your starting quarterback. Uh, he's going on a fast track. He's going to have to play well. In Houston, it's weird. Everybody talks so positively about C.J. Stroud going into the draft. They've not given him the starting job. They want him to compete. And in Indianapolis, this is kind of really intriguing. Uh, Jim Irsay, who's kind of the spokesman for the team, says this will be hard. This will be painful. He's got to learn to play at this level. We're talking about the Colts' number one draft pick, the quarterback, Anthony Richardson. And, of course, they've got a whole pile of injuries around him. So those are some of the storylines as all these camps and all these guys get on the field Tuesday, Wednesday into this week because two weeks from now we'll be playing preseason games. So quarterbacks, it's a quarterback lead. That's a big, big story. Yeah, it is. And it's always fun to watch the young quarterbacks and how they develop. But I look at Aaron Rodgers with the Jets and, you know, is he going to be able to sustain himself? I mean, has he had a lot of injuries as an NFL quarterback? He's been no. very, very sturdy. So uh, maybe he's going to be able to kind of flip that franchise around. I mean, the Jets really haven't been in the Super Bowl since Joe Namath, right? Yeah, Jets have been down forever. Jets have burned through a lot of high draft pick quarterbacks, the the Mark Sanchez's of the world, and mm-hmm. what they did with Zach Wilson and didn't work out. So. Rodgers is a bridge to something else, but I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to be doing any 3-14 and 14 season in New York. Right, for sure. Yeah. So that, that bears watching, and as we march through, we'll be talking about other teams and other big storylines. Let's go from there. Let's go to college football. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Pac-12, a lot going on here with the commissioner coming out. What did he have to say, Lee? Uh, George Klyovkov sounded off on everything as it relates to the Pac-12, potential expansion, and the media contract. 
He answered questions for 75 minutes, but he didn't say a lot. They did not announce a contract extension yet. He says they are right on the brink of announcing an extension. And he, he just responded to a lot of firepower questions from the media of how come you didn't sign a deal by now? How come you haven't answered anybody's question? You've been in seclusion. What's the end result of this? What the hell's happening to your conference with all these rumors? He said, stability of my conference and patience in running my conference is going to lead us to success. He says the landscape with TV deals has continued to change. He says the tone of our conversations of late has changed. Networks are now coming back into the conversation. We don't know which of the final group of networks, but the rumor is there's something going on with Disney, ESPN, ABC. And, Mm -hmm. of course, they had a long relationship in the old Pac-10, Keith Jackson and ABC. (laughs) CW Network, new ownership, diving into the professional sports world. Evidently, they could be part of this equation. And then there's the whole streaming world, and I don't know whether that's Amazon or somebody else. They think that they're going to have a three-way media deal. Uh, the dollar value, it could go from anywhere from $37 million, I've been told, to as much as 50 Klevakov indicated that the, when he met with the presidents about a week and a half ago, that they thought that by the time he was done with whatever this three-pronged package looks like, that they could match what the Big Ten gets, and the Big Ten gets close to 50. I think the Pac-12 is in the 40s. If, if that's what he winds up with, then patience and stability sure help. The other story uh, is that, you know, the rumors, who's leaving? Are the corner schools leaving? Is Neon Dion in Colorado and Utah leaving? Is anybody going to cherry pick what's gone on in the Northwest at Oregon and Washington? He says all 10 schools are committed. Hmm. Utah's athletic director said, we are staying. Colorado, which talked to the Big 12, looks like it's staying because I'm not sure the Big 12 is going to snare them. And the rumor that was out there last week is still out there right now. If they get this increased pie, why would we ever add San Diego State and SMU and have to give you a piece of the pie that we just negotiated? If it's $45 million or if it's a top line, $50 million. So that's where they are. Um Klebikoff closed out his press briefing with the media, and it was just doon, doon, doon. He answered every question in the form he wanted. He said, as far as he's concerned, realignment's done. He doesn't think there's going to be any more shifting, which means to me that maybe they are of the opinion they don't need San Diego State and SMU. You know, I've, I've asked the burning question, can somebody please tell me what the Aztecs really bring to the Pac-12? <laughs> Not much in football. yes. A unique situation in basketball. Yeah, they bring the San Diego TV market, but the market wasn't watching Aztec football anyhow. They were all over the map, mm-hmm. different network affiliations. And he says, I know the truth about all these deals out there, in essence, telling the media, you don't know. <laughs> so we got to trust the new commissioner. Uh, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, it's going to come, this new multimedia deal. And which three networks is it going to be? What's the dollar value? Hell, if it's 45, that's really good. If it's 50, I'd say, wow. So let's just trust this guy's leadership because he's been pretty pretty strong that I know what the hell I'm doing without making reference to the last guy, Larry Scott, who wrecked the thing. 
Yeah, well, it, it's it's amazing how they do it financially. I'd love to see like an executive summary of their budget because the money they get on the TV deal is probably at least two thirds of their department revenue, maybe even three quarters, right? Because uh, they probably get concessions and you know tickets and that sort of thing. But I would imagine even with you know forty fifty million dollars, some of these Pac twelve programs might still be operating at a deficit, right? Because it's not like they get huge turnout at some of, some of these stadiums. Well, UCLA is the biggest financial drain. UCLA's got enormous money problems, which is indirectly why they wound up going to the, the Big Ten Conference. But that's on them and how they operated and the contracts they bought out and how they had to pay all these coaches off, etc. I, I think most of these schools operate at a fine line, profit or loss. Oregon State, Washington State are amongst the lower echelon revenue stream programs. But if you get a contract that's 37 to 40 to 45 million, that really helps all your programs because that TV revenue funds 18 other intercollegiate athletic programs. So I'll be interested to see what the final deal is. How many, how much of it is on TV? How much of it's on streaming? And what the dollar value is? Yeah, it's 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 great to see how this breaks down because everything's changing in the world of media with streaming. And then we're seeing everything going on with Hollywood, with the actors and the writers strike. And a lot of them are saying we want sports content because it's a lot less expensive to produce. So I wonder if the CW is thinking ahead that way. Maybe that's why they want to get deeper into the sports game. Okay. On we go from that. Let's talk one other thing here about the Pac-12 conference about to become the Pac-10 because those guys are leaving. Yeah, they're leaving. Lincoln Riley, no relation. And Chip Kelly, they're on their way off to the Big Ten. So, I mean, they're going to be in the Pac-12 this year. This is the final year, right? Yeah, it's a farewell for both of them. Both were kind of emotional in the individual coaching sessions at the the Pac-12 media days in Vegas. Mike Riley says, this is not good versus evil. He invoked the phrase from the Godfather, this is not personal, it's business. It's all about (laughs) dollars and cents. Chip Kelly said, I did not know we were leaving till the day it was announced. They don't include coaches in this conversation. His dialogue is school presidents and maybe the athletic directors or the chancellors. Said he had no knowledge at all. And, of course, he leaves behind a long relationship in in the conference, having been at Oregon, having been at other places. Uh, Riley said he is so excited because he's got the Heisman Trophy quarterback back for one more year in Caleb Williams. He's got a new offensive line. They think they've fixed their defense like they did last year. Last year they had 20 transfers in the portal. This year I think it's 14 to 16. They've really added a lot of role-playing guys. And for Kelly, who was really on the hot seat about a year ago this time and had a good season, now we find out what life after Dorian Thompson Robinson is because the quarterback's gone and what life after Jack, Zach Charbonnet, the 1,100, 1,400-yard rushing running back, he's gone to the NFL too. So we'll see if Kelly can duplicate it. But Kelly does have a track record of developing quarterbacks, but sometimes it it takes him some time. So this is not personal. It's just business. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting to see where these two programs go because they're – they're so integral to the history of the Pac-12. And, you know, for Southern California sports, I mean, you can make an argument that both the UCLA and the USC program are more important to the Los Angeles culture than the Chargers are, you know. And so amazing what's, what they're going to what's happening with them right now. Um, you know, I, obviously, I wish them the best. But, 
you know, it's just going to be it's going to be an odd not having them in the Pac-12. Yeah, the Pac-12 is not as sexy a year from now with the Trojans and Bruins no longer part of that. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with scheduling. Uh, will the will the remaining Pac-10 schools, be it Oregon or Washington, whomever, will they want to play Southern Cal and UCLA in non-conference games? That's going to be really interesting mm-hmm. to see. Or do they view them as being toxic, the enemy, because they left us behind? And then the whole wild card in the thing is, this is just not about Trojan football or Bruins basketball going to the Big Ten. This is this is about all their sports, all that travel. Mm-hmm. And we talked about SC is going to travel 21,000 miles in 12 weeks in college football. I mean, a phenomenal amount of travel. And then you're, and then you're doing it with baseball, and you're doing it with basketball, and you're doing it with volleyball, and you're doing it with swimming. Mm-hmm. That, to me, makes no sense at all. But be it as it may, those are the rules and the structure they're going to live by a year from now. Well, remember back in the day, the Rose Bowl was always the champion of the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. The granddaddy. Yeah, the granddaddy of them all. And that's when we used to see, you know, Ohio State, USC, and some really classic matchups. Now they're kind of in their own little world, you know, or they'll soon to be in their own little world. But then again, the Bulls, they, they kind of abandoned that, uh, that, that system anyway. Well, college football goes to 12 playoff teams two years from now. Nice. Keep that in mind, too. Okay, we go from there. Before we do, uh, just remind everybody about what's going to happen at the end of our show, our fans forum. Oh, I think we're going to have some fireworks. Yeah, I mean, we got a ton <laughs> that's already fl- flowing into fans forum. So if you want to uh, get involved, just type in your comment or question. We try to, you know, if some people like will put in 10 or 12 different messages. We try to spread the love around, but there's a lot of really good responses in there. You still have a chance to get involved. Just type it in in Facebook or YouTube. Okay, on we go. Let's talk about what happened over the weekend abroad, because what a fun weekend it was. Yeah, I mean, this this we were texting about the British Open and the crazy course conditions. And then this guy, Brian Harmon, who is he? This is the journeyman had not won a tour since 2017. I mean, it's a fabulous story. He's from Syracuse, New York, grew up in Georgia. Family lives in Key West. Uh, guy's just a journeyman. And he had a hot hand and nobody else could chase him down. It was a landslide win. Uh, I, th- I think, and I watched a chunk of it. I watched a lot of it on Sunday because I just wondered, okay, top of the leaderboard, here comes the pressure. Here come the names. And they tried to chase him down, and he did not wilt. Mm. I mean, it was amazing, his consistency. And this whole thing exploded on Friday. He birdied the first four holes Friday in the second round, birdied right out of the gate, and then he eagled 18. And he took what was a traffic jam at the top of the leaderboard, and he ran away from him. Yeah. And at one point, he was six and seven strokes ahead, which is absolutely amazing. And then when, when Rory McIlroy, when John Rahm made a run at him on Sunday, he answered, birdie, birdie. Instead of being three up, it's back to five. And those guys are running out of holes. Uh, he built a seven-stroke lead. He was challenged three different times. He went on the birdie binge. He was number one in putting for all four days. Wow. I mean, he was Accurate as compared to Rory McIlroy, who couldn't sink anything, <laughs> which is why he was so far back in the pack. He was number two on gr- gr- hitting greens in accuracy. He wasn't putting balls into bunkers. He wasn't putting them into the what's it called the ghosts, the gross, the high grass. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of looks like you're back forty out here. 
Um, he just he just kept making shots. He hit only two bunkers in four days. That's amazing. And, yeah, and some of those holes, the 17th hole we had talked about was rebuilt and jury-rigged and looked mm-hmm. like a death trap, and there were <laughs> five pothole bunkers. Yeah. He stayed out of all the trouble. I mean, he was just so accurate along the way. And he not only gets the Claret Jug, he wins $3 million. He now is part of the Writers' Cup team. He's on the President's Cup team. I mean, it was pretty impressive. And meanwhile, back of the pack, I kept looking for names. And I had to go down the leaderboard to find Rory McIlroy, who had a cold putter, and Rahm, who had a bad start. And Xander disappeared. And Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson, holy cow. Double bogey, double bogey. Between them, I think they had, I want to say, five double bogeys and one triple bogey between them. And they were down at the bottom of the leaderboard in in the British Open. They didn't even make the cut there on a plane by Saturday morning going home. (laughs) Uh, What a phenomenal victory for a a journeyman. And all all these golfers, including Rory McIlroy, just lined up by the tent as he walked up uh, to sign his scorecard, and they were high-fiving him. So the guys really appreciate him. He, he was so cool. It was really neat. It was, it was amazing, because every time I checked on the leaderboard, to your point, they, they were four or five strokes you know, away from him. He just kept it up the whole, uh, the whole tournament. But the conditions were nuts. I mean, the oh, rain Sunday. was coming down, and these guys had their hats turned around backwards. I mean, imagine playing in that and then having such a spectacular finish, not hitting the bunkers, having the top putting game in those conditions. Boy, I mean, what a weekend for him. And what did I tell you at the end of last week on our, our Thursday podcast? I said that you're going to play in the British Open, John. You've got to play the leaderboard. And you got to play the course, which is really jacked up. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you may have to play the weatherman. And Sunday, I mean, it was raining sideways with 15 to 20 mile an hour winds. And, and the ball hit the green and sat there. It didn't roll, it didn't bounce. But the elements were so bad, you could spray the thing and the wind could take it off. And thing. I, I thought of you trying to play out of a six-foot deep <laughs> pothole bunker. Yeah, some of those were brutal. I mean, just like an uphill slope to yep. get out of those things. Unbelievable. So what a, what a great story about just a lifer. Now the greatest moment of his life in Brian Harmon. On we go. Next topic. Yeah. So we're talking about F1 racing. I think this was in Hungary, wasn't it? In Budapest? Hungarian Grand Prix. Uh, I don't know that this is good for sport, but these guys have figured this out. And somebody has to explain to me how these guys have figured it out. And none of the other racing teams have. We're talking about Team Red Bull. We're talking about Max Verstappen. Tenth win of the season for him. In 12 races. Wow. He has won eight F1 races in a row. His team, Red Bull, has won all 12 events on the F1 schedule. His teammate, Sergio Perez, has the other two wins. And you just think, how is this possible that one team could figure out horsepower, handling, aerodynamics, tires, pit stops, how they could do it? And the greatness of the other teams, whether it's Mercedes, whether it's Ferrari, whether it's the U.S. team Haas, they can't figure it out. They're not competitive. This guy is blowing away the field. Lewis Hamilton of Great Britain, who runs for Mercedes, had 99 career wins two years ago. And as the rules changed and new things came in, 
Red Bull figured it out. Mercedes, which had dominated the sport, has yet to figure it out. And here's Lewis Hamilton with 99 wins two years ago, stalled, has not been able to get anything accomplished. Now, I don't know if it's good for a sport to have these guys qualify in the pole and just run away from the field and just never, ever be challenged. I don't know what they're doing. But they're all operating with the same type of technology. They're all operating with a salary cap, if you will, on on expenditures and the limitations on testing. But Red Bull knows how to do it. Nobody else does it. It's just a really strange thing. Well, I would imagine in F1, getting that pole position in the front row is a huge advantage because that course is narrow. It's not like a big, wide-open mm-hmm. Indy 500 or NASCAR race. Um, so, yeah, if they've, got, if they've been able to figure out a way to get in that number one spot, did they have time trials before? Oh, yeah. That's how they qualify. Yeah. So they must have a system to dial in that, that time trial to get them at the top of the well, list. They load their cars. They know how to run. But then when you have to run that course— you know, 29 turns, whatever it is, mm-hmm. they just totally continue to dominate. So I, I don't know where F1 is going because part of me says these guys are really mystical to be able to execute this. But this can't be good for the sport if nobody can compete with those guys. Mm. On we go. Here's another topic. There's just a late-breaking story here we thought we'd throw in to cover. Okay, well, first we want to talk about the Women's World Cup. I mean, this they've had a nice run. They got off to a one nothing start here in the uh, first round. Yeah, and we saw, I think, the evolution of maybe the next superstar, Sophia Smith. She had the oh, two goals and one assist. She was everywhere. And obviously we know about Alex Morgan and we know about Megan Rapino. Uh, and there's a bit of a change in the guard going on with Trinity Rodman and, uh, you know, Alyssa Williams and some others. But that was against an overwhelmed Vietnam side, which was in the tournament for the first time ever. Wednesday, they play La Orange. Mm-hmm. They play the Netherlands. They play the Dutch. And the Dutch are phenomenal. Now, it was weird. Netherlands really struggled. They beat Portugal in their first round game 1-0. Portugal's a good side. This is a tough group. So this will be a real learning curve at the Women's World Cup on Wednesday when Team USA plays its second game in Group E because these lassies are really, really good. Yeah, well, did you see the the size differential between the Team Vietnam and Team USA? It was size like, and quickness and explosiveness it was, and skill. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the ball was rarely on the other side of the field. Right. The American team was so dominating. But, yeah, to your point, Sophia Smith was special. I mean, she was always right around the ball. I saw her being interviewed before the, they got started, and she said, all my life I've been a scorer. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. And, and I know how to get the ball in the net. And she sure darned well. She got two goals that game. Yeah, they're going to play a Dutch side that's big. And physical. Mm. And now we'll see how this young American group, and I'm not talking about Alex or Megan, I'm talking about these young girls, how they're going to hold up to get knocked down. There will be yellow cards and it will be physical and you will be marked and you will be challenged and you will be kicked and you will be knocked down. So this is kind of a litmus test to see how they're going to handle this next level up because that level the people wearing the orange jerseys they're really good yeah well it's all a huge part of the culture the men's team for the Netherlands has always been fantastic and so I would expect the women to be strong as well okay here's the last thing what the Saudis want the Saudis obviously are going to get this is an amazing thing that's happening not just in pro soccer but a whole bunch of other places in pro sports but this is a late-breaking story yeah, well, Mbappe getting big money here, $322 million? 
He told Paris Saint-Germain, where he played last year, Mm -hmm. I'm not coming back. Right. Sell me. I want to go here. And out of the clear blue sky, here comes an offer early hours this morning from Saudi Arabia to play for Al-Halil. That's the same team that signed Cristiano Ronaldo last summer to that mega contract coming off the World Cup disappointment. They have offered $322 million transfer fee that will go to Paris Saint-Germain. They've offered him a split contract. I was told it's two years, $720 million over two years. He would play one year in Saudi Arabia with Ronaldo and would have the option to take the rest of the money and then come back and play in Spain for Real Madrid. It's kind of a two-pronged deal. It's, but the money, I mean, it's a, it, it blows <laughs> the balance it's of enormous. power away. Yeah. And I, I tried to go back and, and do a, a, a look at how many players, a chunk of them from the English Premier League, have taken Saudi money in the last two months and are going there. It's like 11 so far. Um, I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. I don't know how you're going to get it under control because what Saudi Arabia wants they're just going to buy. You know, we've talked about soccer. They bought Newcastle United in the English Premier League, and they're spending up to the limit and then doing all this creative stuff to get guys to go to Newcastle. They bought a Formula One team. You know, they've invested in the NBA and the NHL and the Sports Regional Network in Washington, D.C. The NFL and the NBA says, no, no, we're not going to have Saudi money come in and upset the balance of power in our league, but it's just whatever they want, they're going to get, as witnessed by what they're doing with Paris Saint-Germain. Well, I, I think um, this uh, Saudi uh, family owns Manchester City as well, um, you know, in the in the Premier League. But is this, do you think this is a, a case where, okay, hey, these are just legitimate investors that want to have exposure in the sport, or do you think this is an attempt by the Saudi regime to sort of whitewash maybe some of their... Uh, their track record on the on the political and uh, national stage. We saw the LIV, the golf situation, and everybody to a man has said blood money, sports washing. So I guess they got the money. I guess they can do what they wish with the money. Are they trying to curry global favor, favor without changing how they treat their own citizens? And I I don't have an answer for it. But this this upsets the apple cart. I mean, the financial structure of these guys can buy any player, any time in any sport and take them. What does it do to the rest of the sports? I I don't have an answer for that, but uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there that comes from Saudi ties that might have an opinion. And I know I know the average Joe six pack who watches <laughs> watches our podcast or Monday bonus podcast. He's probably got an opinion, too. So I'll just ask this question on Transform. Do you think this is good for the sport? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a valid question. And, and if you're a player, I mean, you've got to make a tough decision. You know, are you going to take the money or are you going to, you know, stand on some sort of moral high ground? Um, they're in a tough spot. Now, has Mbappe taken the deal or is he considering it? it he's considering it, but I think it's almost a lock because they're evidently Al Harrell, where Cristiano Ronaldo is, would allow him to do a split deal, play the first year in Saudi Arabia, then go play for Real Madrid. Unbelievable. I yeah. mean, this is there, there's no one that even comes close to this on an annual contract value in any sport anywhere, right? Well, they, they went after Lionel Messi, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember you almost fell off the chair when I told you they offered him. I think at that point was maybe three hundred twenty-six million, and then days later, all of a sudden, he turned him down to do this multi-tier deal to come to Inter Miami, Major League Soccer, with marketing side panel deals locked in. So it's just it's stunning the fact that eleven guys from the English Premier League have already jumped to go to Saudi Arabia. That's incredible. And what he's making, if he takes the deal, he'll be making almost double what the NFL salary cap is. I mean, that's just amazing. Money talks, people walk. Mm-hmm. Okay, time for Fans Forum. You think you got any questions there? Holy cow, I've never seen this many up on your board. Let's get started. We'll try to run through as many as we can. We just ask you just to ask one or two questions. Don't clog it up because it's tough to go through all of them at the same time. Yeah, go ahead. and there's a huge list here. This is from Angel, and he says, if the Dodgers can land um, Lucas, Marcus Stroman, or Shane Bieber, they'll be good to go and one of the favorites in, in the NL. Yeah. Yeah, and they're going to have to trade one of the young guys. And it's not going to be Bobby Miller. And I I seriously doubt it's going to be uh, Everett Sheehan. But one of those other kids, whether it's Pepeo or Grove, uh, would probably wind up going with another prospect. And I don't think they're getting Giolito on a one-year rental. I think they would try to sign him into an extension. Uh, I like Bieber a great deal. I think he's vastly underrated. I think he's a pretty good pitcher. Uh, Stroman, I don't know which is the Marcus Stroman because he's been with three different ball clubs now and he's had those flash years, and this is one of them at Wrigley Field, but he's never shown real consistency. And are, are you going to pay him mega, mega money if you're not sure you're going to get this this type of productivity on a year-by-year basis? What would you do? Um, you know, they, they've got to make a deal to get his pitcher. I mean, they have to do it. And they've got assets. And the Dodgers have a good farm program, so they're always going to be developing new kids. They got a, a, a division championship opportunity staring them right in the nose. The Padres can't figure out what they're doing. And you've really only got Arizona and San Francisco to contend with. I mean, I think the door's open. Okay, we move on. Next question on Fans Forum. Okay, let's go here to Pedro Rosario. He says, yeah, Otani looks happy in Anaheim. He ain't going nowhere. Would devastate those kids and Japanese fans to show up every day. Just went to the Yankees game last Tuesday. There's no doubt that this is a special human being. Uh, I went back and dug up. In 1920, the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees. $125,000 cash, which was a phenomenal amount of money in 1920, plus a $300,000 loan and some players that went to Fenway Park. Uh, obviously, we know what Ruth's career turned into. This this would probably be tantamount to something like that. Now, Otani is not young. I, I think he's 28 now. But he's, he's been here six years in Anaheim. And I was trying to think, if I were an Angel fan, would I be steamed at the owner? Or would I just be steamed at the business of baseball? I surely wouldn't be steamed at Otani. I, my, my gut feel is, and maybe I've flipped on this a little bit, is let's just say thanks. Because he came to Angel Stadium on a low-price contract. He could have had more money to go other places. And he's, he's done a phenomenal job for them. He's the most unique individual, John. You talk about the workload he carries, and there is, he never takes a day off. He's in the lineup every day as a DH, and he, you know, he pitches once a week, and there's all sidebar preparation for that. He's just a special individual. I, I can't imagine how he's not fatigued physically and now maybe not emotionally just with the burden of expectation of 
you got to do this to get the Angels in the playoffs. And by the way, what are you going to do in free agency? He doesn't want to talk about it. So I just say thanks. But we've been honored to see something really special. We're probably never, ever going to see in our lifetime again. But how – yeah, he, he's an amazing player and an amazing man. But it's isn't amazing how the Angels have had Trout and Otani, arguably the two best players in the sport, and they can't make the playoffs. I mean, that, that's another mind-boggling thing, like trying to figure out the Padres this year. So I, it's, it's just – things just sometimes just don't make sense. Well, injuries, bad drafts, drug problems, a pitcher who died. Yeah. Actually, two pitchers who died. So, I, you know, franchise is cursed. And I, I said this last week on TV on KUSI in the Saturday package I do. If they put out a press release that – Shohei Otani's been traded. The next press release should be that Artie Moreno is selling the franchise because I don't think he'll ever be forgiven. That being said, he tried really hard, and that's a great player that we've had a privilege to watch. I just I stop doing whatever I'm doing when he's coming up the plate or when he's pitching mm-hmm. just to observe because we won't see this. I don't think we'll ever, ever see this again. Yeah, well, you, you bring up the Red Sox owner trading Babe Ruth. It is kind of like that. Yep. And and you don't want to go down in the history books as the guy that let him go. Okay, on we go. Okay, this is uh, another one here from Pedro. He says, the local radio shows need to call Hacksaw for a weekly <laughs> Baja to the Canadian Rockies sports update. So bland and repetitive, no soul in today's San Diego sports radio. Well, the landscape has changed. Thank you. You are right. I am bleeping brilliant. Uh, I miss it. Uh, I worked really hard at it. Now that I reflect back and John and I have talked over coffee a couple times. I don't know how the hell I did what I did for 28 years because I was doing four hours of sports talk every day. I produced all my own show, which was about 25 guests a week. And I was doing the Aztecs and USC football on Saturday, and I did the Chargers, and then I did the Seahawks on Sunday. And I was meeting myself coming and going in the airport all the time. It was just, (laughs) I'd look back and I'd say, how the hell did I do all that? Because there's a ton of preparation involved. It's not like dude just doesn't show up and open the phones and do four hours. No. No, I mean, what do you think these 25 guests per week came from and all that? So I enjoyed it. It's just a different landscape now. I have no doubt that if I came back, it'd be very different from anything else that's on the air, and it'd be bleeping brilliant, I promise you. Yeah, (laughs) of course it would. You know, we get to see on TV, you know, on weekends on KUSI, and that's terrific. But, you know, the local sports talk is – some of those guys are pretty good, and some of them are kind of rookies or learning on the job. But the the stations don't have the power that 690 had, you know, like up to the Canadian Rockies. I mean, it was just a, a, a force. Well, we were the first to do it. Yeah. So we were the first one through the wall, and this is who we are, and this is our flag, and this is our style. And we had a brilliant team of guys. Um, and I'll be honest with you. I, I think there's a hole in the heart of the market since Spanos took the Chargers out of here. I just emotionally, John, just don't think it's the same marketplace anymore any longer. And obviously the Padres now are the show in town. Uh, and I don't see an awful lot of brass of anybody on the radio right now wanting to stand up and make statements about this Padre team being sub 500, 100 games into the season. Uh, you know, you, you got you to speak the truth if you're going to do this the right way rather than 
shishkumba, cheer for the home home for the home team. Can't do that. At least I wouldn't do it. Anyhow, that's where we are. Next question. Okay. And this is a, a, a comment here from uh, from Arthur. And he's talking, I think this is about Mbappe. He says, buying anyone you want defeats balanced competition, which is what sports is supposed to be about. Well, if you've got what's called in pro soccer, it's called the fair play rules, which is, in essence, it's a salary lid. But that's for the English Premier League. But if you're going to allow them, the Saudis, to come in and to cherry pick the great players from Spain or Italy or the EPL and take them back there at inordinate prices, what does it do to the leagues that are strip mined to the tallow? Like I said, I've counted 11 English Premier League players who have signed to go to Saudi Arabia in this transfer window. And we're not talking about scrubs. We're talking about significant talent, yeah. whether it's a keeper, a striker, a midfielder. And they're all getting paid $73 million or $38 million, which because of the fair play rule in England, you, you, it's a salary cap. So it, it, I think it damages the integrity of the leagues to allow this to happen. But how do you fight it? Saudis are making up their rules as they go. Yeah, it's 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 tough to fight it because, you know, in the world of business, you would expect there's going to be a lot of dynamic movement, people making as much as they can. But sports is different because you, you want to have that competitive nature. The NFL's proven it. They, they have a league of parity. And overall, that league does really well. So you want to have, yes, some sort of competitive balance because – it's almost like the F1 situation with Verstappen. They won 10 of 12. It kind of doesn't make the sport as exciting when you have such a dominant team or a dominant player spending whatever it takes. This is your segment, Fans Forum. We've got a couple more questions here we'll run through. Yeah, we do. So... Um uh, this is the comments here. Uh, Pedro has another follow-up. He says, exactly. Hacksaw hit the nail on the head. Exactly what's wrong with today's radio. Afraid to investigate what's wrong with the Padres and get their credentials stripped. So, I don't know. People are piling on. All right. We move on. Okay. Let's go to some of the social media comments and get some of these guys involved. There's just so much Hacksaw. We've got a, a lot of live stream viewers watching today. Let's see if we can get in. And here, let's talk a little bit about Bob Melvin. And this is uh, from Instagram, Dave Meyer. He says, think the question is, is Melvin the guy to lead this team? Yes, he has done very well with the A's, but those guys were not the same caliber players we have. In my opinion, he seems too passive of a manager for a team with this star power. Too many times he's gone to the pen with a lead and knowing they have struggled and let them blow a lead. Even if we had won half the games we blew in the seventh or later, we would be eight games over 500. Maybe a manager change is needed before the deadline and not new players. It has been intimated to me by people that I believe know some unique things inside that clubhouse that the general manager has leaned on the manager not to beat up these players. The players are running the franchise, not the manager in the dugout. That's what was inferred to me by somebody that I think has a better handle. So if A.J. Preller has inferred to Bob Melvin, you are not going to bash Machado, and you're not going to bash Soto. Now the manager's lost a little bit of his ability to run the clubhouse and run the dugout the way it should be. That's just what's been inferred to me if I connect the dots based on what I've been told. you know. And then, then if you add in the analytics that you will play this guy, and this is the batting order, and this is the rotation— 
Now you got a robo-manager who's pushing the buttons that the people upstairs in analytics told him to push. I don't know that Bob Melvin would quit. I don't know if they want to fire Bob Melvin. But if that's what's happening there, that might be the only explanation as to why the hell there's no leadership and there's no fire. I mean, for Melvin to have to continue, this is a third time in about a month where he raises the question about focus and intensity and fire. That falls on the players, but if he's not allowed to land on the players with both feet, that you're going to do this. Can you imagine somebody telling Buck Showalter, you're not <laughs> going to press these guys' buttons? Yeah. That's what's been inferred to me. The more I thought about it this weekend as we went through another miserable end of a series, losing again to another sub-500 team at AAA pitching steps. How is this humanly possible? So... They may deny it. Nobody wants to answer that question. I don't know why anybody's asking that question. They probably should. Uh, but there's something significantly wrong in that dugout, in that clubhouse at Petco Park. Yeah, well, we've talked about, is it is it player leadership? Is it the manager? Is it the general manager? It is a leadership issue because they have the talent. They've got all the pieces to make this work. But you watch those post-game pressers with Bob Melvin, and you can tell that he's, he's restrained. Yes. And he's you could tell that he's being careful in the words he uses because he can't throw anyone under the bus. Um, but then he makes questionable decisions. I mean, just a few nights ago, Luis Campusano had, what was it, three or four hits in a game. He had a great game. And the next game, they sit him and they... Bat Matt Carpenter who's hitting like what a buck fifty two for thirty two last I checked yeah so sometimes you look at these decisions I can't imagine that Preller and his analytics guys are saying sit Campusano and put Carpenter back in as DH right we'll find out when we get to the finish line and you know you like to bring up Manny Machado's quote look at the back of the baseball card well the back <laughs> of the baseball card says you're still ten games back and you're seventh in the wild card race fighting for three positions jeez jeez yeah okay. so here's another comment here this is about the women's world cup this is from the all-american Joe he says Lee you know darn well you're missing a key factor men's world cup brought in 7.5 billion in revenue the 2019 women's world cup brought in 300 million the public isn't buying it unless you you speak the full truth. Well, the full truth is the men's program goes back into the 1930s. Women's program has only grown by leaps and bounds maybe in the last decade or so. And we talked this past week, why is Team USA so good? Title IX, college athletics, mm -hmm. what it's meant in terms of the development. You don't see that in Ethiopia and you don't see that in England or Ireland um, those programs will come along as they funnel more money in. And, and you know, the All-American Joe is correct <laughs> that the men's side, because of its history and legacy, generates phenomenal amounts of revenue. TV contracts, advertising, marketing campaigns and contracts, things of that nature, sponsorships. The women are starting to grow there, but they're not there because the red, white, and blue is really the only legitimate one globally that's done it back to back. It will come as it goes. But that being said, the women, I don't know if they're going to unionize, but the women need to be paid more collectively, the 32 teams compared to the men. And for those who are on the live stream are not aware of what we're talking about, the men's World Cup teams have a pot of gold of $440 million. The women's are being paid $110 million. And now the women have taken a, a bit of a bump in the last couple of World Cups. 
the men obviously, because of its heritage and, and going back to the 1930s, obviously are earning a lot more money. There'll be some balance that I think it'll continue to grow, but it's not. They're not going to go 400 to each side immediately. Right. They're right. going to have to work their way through it. But I mean, he raises a valid point. I'm just telling you why the USA is is dominated and what has to happen next globally. Yeah, I, I thought your your take on the Title IX that would kind of open my eyes a bit uh, what gives america a strategic advantage in the women's program but yeah the 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 revenue is like apples and oranges i mean it's you know it's not even comparable uh so as much as we'd like to see the women have success and win a third in a row and we hope they make as much money as they can the reality is is that their pie is a smaller pie and fifa last week announced we had struggles to try to get TV contracts with women's games mm. in Australia and New Zealand. And they've not sold out all these games. They're giving away gobs of free tickets for people to come sample the product. So it's been, on the women's side, it's been slow growth. Okay, we've got a couple more here before we put a lid on this. <laughs> okay. And uh, here we'll talk. This is kind of a long one. Talk about the Pac-12. And this is uh, from M. Doherty. He says, I think the points about not expanding are mostly spot on. But I'm not sure where the money is coming from for the conference. People forget the CW, as of September 1st, will not have affiliates in Seattle or Sacramento, as of when this comment is made. I, I know you can stream for free, but that is not linear in these markets. The network is not paying for LIV Golf, and the terms of its ACC deal have not been disclosed. But remembering those were games that had been passed down to the RENs previously, Tier 3. It's doubtful the money is high. As for Apple, it pays $250 million a year for all of MLS, charges people about 100 bucks a year to watch it, except for a few matches it subcontracts to Fox. So that's not a panacea. Either way, from a financial or a distribution perspective. Well, you're correct, uh, but I will tell you that that Sinclair uh, and and these other groups that own CW are now awakened to the fact live sports draws people. Yeah, and it draws the ability for us to sell inventory in those broadcasts. So now we are willing to make the investment. And if CW is the third partner, I mean, there's no doubt that ESPN, Disney, whoever is carrying is going to get first choice of games. But there will be games and there will be a price tag, if, uh, uh, you know, impacted to the second tier of games or even the third tier of games. It's not going to be like the ACC CW contract, which is, is getting the bottom teams in the Atlanta Coast Conference on a Saturday night. Um, it's complex. Um, we'll just wait and see what what. The partnership looks like if it gets announced in the next two to three weeks and what the dollar value is. But if you take what Klyovkov said, face value, he said the landscape has changed. The tone of the conversations has just changed. Uh, and ESPN is, is getting involved in other partnerships now with other sports, which would mean maybe more money is available. Maybe there is going to be some type of Disney Disney input into this deal. It's it's so deep. It's so complex. Um, take a deep breath. We'll see what three weeks <laughs> from now. By the way, this doesn't happen until after the 23-24 season. Well, do you think the Pac-12 is at a disadvantage because they're on the West Coast and the games are so late for all the Eastern uh, sports fans? They are, but there's ways around that. You can do early games out here. Uh, you can do Friday night games out here. You can position to play at 5 in Corvallis, Oregon, if it's a game of importance, which is 8 o'clock in the Eastern Sea. You can 
you can jury-rig the schedule to make it fit to serve all partners. I'll guarantee you in the Pac-12 or the Pac-10 what our new conference will look like. I will watch a game at 5 p.m., Oregon, Washington, whomever, because it's Pac-12 and I like Pac-12. And if it's 8 o'clock East Coast time for the TV viewers back there, that's not bad. I can do that. Now, I don't know that I want to watch games at 9 a.m. out here on the West Coast so we can get in the 12 noon window on the Eastern Seaboard. But it's a juggling match. They'll find they'll find a way, and we'll just see if there's more unique TV partners that now come front and center that want to be part of this. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how they're going to do this. I mean, think about the Mountain West and some of the game times they oh. get. I mean, they get pushed to the back of the bus. Um, so I'm sure the Pac-10 will work something out, but I'm just the interesting dynamics. I mean, two-thirds of America lives on the eastern side of the Mississippi, you know, so it's it's different on the West Coast. Okay, let's take one more here before we put a lid on this. Okay, before we put a lid on it, and let's uh, let's go to this. i got another Padre comment here. We'll go with this one here about Musgrove and Machado. This is from Manny Motorola. He says, no doubt Joe is a leader on the team. Manny can carry this team. Not sure if he's taken on the outspoken leader role yet. You'd think with all this talent and experience, the role of a leader wouldn't be as needed as on a club with rookies and first and second year guys. Well, you got four stars and then you got the rest of the roster and the four stars are making all the money. And that's one of the problems the team has. Uh, Musgrove is, I think, the verbal leader of the team, but that's on the pitching staff. I don't, I don't know that he can go hold a clubhouse meeting. Maybe he can and say, we need to be doing this, you need to be doing this, Manny or Fernando or whomever. Uh, but the, the, uh, the problem is the makeup of the roster in which the four guys, the Fab Four, got all the money and all the rest of the guys are all hitting in the 220s and 230s or the 210s. And that's a big problem. There's, there's too many substandard players there right now. And then you complement it by the fact we got some guys having crummy seasons. I mean, what, what's happened to Cronenworth is a mystery to me, except that maybe they've figured him out. Uh, and Hassan Kim has been spectacular. He's outside of El Nino. I think HSK is the second most popular player. And in terms of the, of the pitching staff, you know, there's a language issue. Darvish is, does not want to learn English. Sadly, I think he'd be a marketing whiz if he did. Snell is introverted. Musgrove is loud. You know, and then, then they've just got so many guys who are in and out of the pitching staff, and Hater's not a great quote per se. So it's just a weird dynamic of things that are missing from what you normally think. I mean, I I go back to think of of some glory Padre teams that I was in and around all the time. And Tony Gwynn was vocal. Mm-hmm. Caminetti was vocal. And Greg Vaughn was strong and stoic. Uh, and Andy Bennis had had real strong opinions. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a different clubhouse right now. And I don't know if the money's changed it or ruined it. or It's just not the same team. One to 25 on the roster. Yeah, it's, it's just such a weird thing to figure this out. Because there's no one on this team like, you know, uh, Big Poppy or Willie Stargell that was that veteran leader. I mean, I think they were hoping they were going to get that from um, uh, Nelson Cruz, but that never worked out. So, yeah, it just seems kind of rudderless. And to your point, maybe Preller and his analytics guys are just meddling so much that they just can't 
find a way to launch. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our podcast, our Monday bonus package. We remind you, check my website. You will like what I write. Do it every day. You will be fully informed. And now with NFL training camps open, of news and notes about all the NFL training camps and what happened today, the first day. Obviously, what we cover with baseball and basketball, the NHL, and all the other sports. Remind you to share, text, Email, tweet your friends, tell them what we're doing on our podcast, our bonus podcast on Monday, the big regular podcast on Thursday. Subscribe, share, give us thumbs up, give us five stars. (laughs) John, have yourself a great sports week. We'll be back here Thursday to see what's going to happen, baseball trade deadline. Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot in these next three days in this series with Pittsburgh if the the Padres are going to be buyers or sellers. Hey, thanks for being with us. Thanks for participating. Have yourself a great day. Our Monday bonus podcast on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.